Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hi-fi, Sean. Sean Dixon. Um, welcome. Enjoy your cup Hello. of tea there. <laughs> um, what sort of creative atmosphere were you brought up in as a ch- very young child? Wow, that's a question. Um, there isn't actually anybody in my close family that had anything whatsoever to do with music or arts. Um, all I can remember as a small child is in my local town where I come came from, come from, uh, Bells Hill, um, the record shop was actually a barber's. So ever from like, you know, as soon as your hair starts growing at two or three, you're taken to this record shop up these stairs to get your hair cut. So I always walked through record shop, this record shop all the time. So I think that's where my fascination from music came from, you know, seeing people you know, buy these seven-inch records and uh, hearing music all the time. And whilst you're waiting to go up to the barbers, I would, you know, flick through records. I mean, my actual, my first actual album was um, a Burt Backhack album at the age of four because my dad said, I bought it for you because you liked the texture of the cover. Because I've still got it. It's got a kind of fake leather cover. And he said, you like the texture of it? But I mean, that album means so much for me because it completely embedded in me string arrangements, which I suppose I've used immensely over the years. So yeah, but to, to ch- short answer to your question is, um, I mean, I've thought about this before. The only kind of connection I have, and it's funny because a lot of the other bands and musicians from Bell Hill, like my friends Douglas and Norman, etc. We all associate with two things. We associate with a um, barber shop, and on the main street there was a Woolworths, and then Woolworths. That's where my fascination from Omnicords came, because they had a stall that, and then you know, like in the eighties for this electronic keyboard. So um, yeah, <laughs> but did your parents actually listen to music at home? Yeah, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. They bought bought records. My mum told me I destroyed her Elvis collection on the back step with sticks and stones, because like because I think it was more of a fascination of um, sound for me when I was at young age. It was just like 
how does this thing make music? So she said I would watch her play records. They used to have like a like a radio was it you call that a radiogram, you know, the big unit in the living room. And I used to watch, you know, the records fall down and the thing go on and play, and then the next record fall down. And then she said behind my back, you would steal them and go out on the back step in the garden with a stick and you'd spin the record around and try and play it with a stone. So I ended up I think I ended up destroying her Heartbreak Hotel 10-inch. And there was another, I think there was a Beatles 7-inch that was quite early on in rare. And yeah, she said that they had to end up hiding records from me because I kept as a kid going out playing them in the garden. And then to stop that, this is this is a cool thing, to stop that, they actually bought me a record player when I was five for my Christmas. They bought me, a, I still remember it, it was... A, uh, Alba, remember Alba, A-L-B-A? It was an Alba dance set that was like fake teak that sat in my bedroom. And every time I went to get my hair cut, they'd buy me a record. So what was the first record you bought for yourself? Myself? That's a hard one because I always remember, the weird thing is I have lots of records from a very young age that were bought for me. Um, but it was kind of my choice. So I would say the first one that I actually went, can I have that record? Because I heard it was because uh, my aunt, I had this aunt who was really trendy. She was into glam rock and, you know, she was into uh, T-Rex and all that kind of stuff. She was mega cool. I used to go up as a kid to her bedroom and just be like lost in all this amazing music. So um, she had a copy of Sugar Sugar by The Arches, which I totally love. And um, that was my first seven-inch record. And, and the funny thing is my copy has my name wrote on it really badly for when I took it to the school Christmas disco, you know, and used to hand records to people to play. So it has, like, show, property of Sean Dixon wrote on it. <laughs> you weren't going to lose that one. I remember, like, I know, yeah. having a having my own record player in, in my bedroom and my musical tastes changing from my parents and the I'm a different generation to you so my big hero right straight away was was Bowie like many people of, yeah. of my generation but Bowie represented more than music to me he represented the place in which I wanted to go where I felt I belonged which yes. artists yeah. represented that for you and in what way uh, easy, that's an easy answer. Mark Bowen, T-Rex. That, that was the first time that I completely fell in love with everything to do with somebody. Um, obviously, because of my age, I discovered it a bit later on, but I would say it was my first kind of teenage thing where I, you know, I, I went out and basically bought everything that T-Rex ever made um, or get my mum and dad to buy them when I went for a haircut. <laughs> but I mean, but I remember actually they they, they were quite happy because they were you know that thing where your parents kind of go oh you know I want this record I want that record and they were like oh yeah that's cool get it on we like get it on so yeah I, I think mean, get I, it I'm sorry get it well, on I was going to say I, was, I think get it on is okay it's that funny thing when people ask you what's your favourite record and, and and I always associate to get it on because it's the one record that's always been there all through my life. That every time I hear it, I still get a rush. You know, it comes on in the car, and you're just like, "What an amazing record!" And uh, yeah, Mark Bowen. I mean, the outsider has played a big role 
in in popular music. I mean, uh, you know, like as I mentioned, Bowie, the Bowie outsider in terms of Bowie's career was a uh, was a huge huge thing. And I think many creative people feel as children a little bit like outsiders in their mm. environment. Did yeah, you have sure. that, and how did that make you feel? And what do you think that actually may have given you? I mean, I was I was on a street in my where I lived in my home, and there was these kind of like how to put it nicely, there were just these bullies that lived on the street. So I was always kind of I was always bullied as a child, you know, for certain things, and um, you know, locking myself away to music was my escape. You know, it was it was my uh, where I did feel like an outsider, and it wasn't until I started meeting other outsiders in my small town. And we became we became a a more powerful team of outsiders that meant that all these other people couldn't can infiltrate what we were doing. So uh, yeah, there was there was there was a definite team of outsiders that you know bef- you know it was before social media. That's that's I, I tell tell that story all the time. You know, I mean, I'm sure you associate with it. Um, you discovered other people by the way they dressed or the way they held themselves or the way they looked or whatever and um, and um, yeah like Norman out the teenage fan club lived around the corner from me but I didn't know him but one day I saw him walking down the street with a pair of tartan trousers on and I kind of thought right okay he's into the same kind of stuff as me and he said I used to see you walk by my house to go to guitar lessons and he used to think the same and then eventually we, you know at the age of 15, 16 we clicked and then his friend was Douglas, like the BMX Bandits. So, and then it all just started from there. We started putting parties on at the local hotel. So we built a kind of, we built this kind of thing that brought all these other outsiders that we'd never knew about into. Because as soon as they started seeing in this small town that there was other people that were into the same kind of music, um, you know, because you don't know, you know, before social media, you didn't know what people were doing in their bedrooms. That sounds saucy, but you know what I mean? But you don't know what people's... um, You didn't know if there was other people out there that were listening to those records that you were listening to. But as soon as you meet somebody that was like, oh, yeah, that's an amazing record. You know, I spent half my teenage years sitting around people's bedrooms playing each other records. You know, you would literally take piles of records to each other's houses and play all your new records or ones you love and and have big discussions about them. You know, and it's... uh, I, I'm, I'm so lucky. I mean, I, you know, I talk about this a lot with, with those guys as well. You know, and there's even been a movie made about it um, with, with, you know, with the scene in Belsa, only scene in Glasgow and all this, you know, how they associate with each other. But um, we're so lucky that we met. You know, when I think about that, like how different our lives would have been if we hadn't crossed paths because we gave each other confidence in what we were doing. To do what we wanted to do, even though we the three, you know, even though we did quite different things from each other, we were still under the same umbrella, but we were all doing different things. But we were all kind of accepting that that's brilliant what you do, and that's brilliant what you do. So yeah, really, really lucky that our paths all crossed. You also grew up in an era where the musical styles were changing rapidly. You know, at that point, it was there weren't necessarily a mix of musical styles, but it would go from one to the other. We'd go from glam, you know, <laughs> punk would come along, uh, you know, new wave or electro would come along and so on. And it would be um, 
it would be sort of a um, different phases which you would which you would get into. When you look mm. back at that, how important do you think that has been to your development as an artist and what you are able to look back on and feed on today? I mean, I was always a uh... You know, I loved it when punk was big, and then this whole this whole kind of dub reggae stuff came from that as well. You know, which which huge influence on me those the way those records sound and the way those records were produced, etc. Um, and I've always had a very open mind to, you know, because everybody I knew, you know, like everybody in Bell Hill had a copy of Saturday Night Fever and a copy of Never Mind the Bollocks. It didn't make you know you've seen punks. You know, going round to their house and they're playing like Night Fever by the Bee Gees. And you're just like, this doesn't make sense, but it makes tons of sense. So it just from that early age, I just realised that it's this kind of no genres. It's just what you like and what you don't like, and you should never. You, you know, I, the, one of my most hated terms is guilty pleasure. I can't stand that term. I think it's the most. I think it's actually quite abusive towards music. There's no way you should feel guilty about whatever pleasure you have within art. So I think and I, from a kind of teenage age, I kind of realised it was like, well, if they can like that and they're not supposed to like that, well, that's what I'm going to be like. I'm just going to go through life and then, you know, even as a songwriter or a producer or music maker, just have that concept of I really shouldn't create, you know, barriers to what I'm supposed to you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I find a lot of um, other musicians a bit too scared to move from the barriers sometimes, and that might be a downfall for me because I've been told, especially in the days of the Soup Dragons, I was told we were quite hard to market because we were kind of moving faster than we were developing. Because when we started, we were like, you know, I was like seventeen, um, and the way we sounded was the way. It was the only way we could sound because that was the ability we had at playing instruments and making records. We had no concept of production. We had no concept of what you do. We were just like young guys thrashing it out and, you know, wanting to be loud, fast and exciting. And as time goes on, you know, your skills develop, your, you start learning more about sound and production and how things go together. And, um, and that's when I think especially for me as a songwriter, I was kind of writing faster than the band was developing in a way. What was going on in my head was like 10 steps away from what I was doing. So um, that's why that period of about 1988 to 1990, there's this huge curve of where the band started. I would say the band changed. I hate that when people say that. I think what happened is, you know, you know, you could quite easily say that about the Beatles. You know, it was like the Beatles sounded kind of like the Beatles and then suddenly Sgt. Pepper's changed that curve. So we were kind of the same. It was technology that changed that curve. Suddenly in 1988, you could afford a sampler. You could afford a drum machine. You could afford this all this. You know, up to then, it was all Fairlights that sampled, which were like 10, 20,000 pounds. But suddenly technology was available to make what was going on in your head. And that was the huge curve that changed everything for me. I mean, you talk there about technology and how it changed things, but I also wonder, you know, as a very young man at 17, you're also getting other cultural interest, interests in at that period in your life that maybe you didn't have before and wider cultural interests than even, even music. So what were your wider cultural interests at that time or did they come really later? 
Um, I mean, I've always been slightly obsessed with the kind of more left field B movie type thing. I used I used to have like a huge VHS collection of um, you know Henry Henlotter movies and and Ross Meyer and. You know, very early on, I got into John Waters through a friend in Bell Hill, and it just exploded in my mind. So I just bought, I just managed to try and get every, I'd go around to all these really dodgy video shops in Glasgow and try and find all these kind of like crazy, you know, B-movies. And, and I think all of us that were hanging about together were in that kind of obsession as well. So artistically, that exploded my mind because I was looking at it from all this stuff from Europe and America which always had really good music in it as well. So, you know, that's the imagery. If you actually look at some of the imagery of the Soup Dragons as it went on, you can start seeing that infiltrating, you know, into how we were making music videos and record covers, etc. cetera. Uh, Ross, the drummer out of the Soup Dragons, um, he was at art school. And then when he joined the band, um, he kind of took a few years out of art school, but he did all the artwork for the band right up to the point and then he decided he wanted to go he wanted to leave and go back to art school so we were without a drummer for you know a few years and that's when I started uh, you know thinking right either we get a drummer or we use this you know we use this opportunity to try and um, make that stuff that's going on in my head but I don't exactly know how to make it but we might as well have a good a good kind of a, a go at trying to do it and see what happens. But artistic, artistically outside that as well, yeah, I mean, um problem with me is, like, I'm colourblind. I'm as colourblind as a person can be, supposedly. And from a very young age at school, and art was always a problem with me, not because of myself, but because of my teachers, because in the... You know, in the 80s, you're made to believe that there's something wrong with you and you're colourblind. You know, you're brought into a room and they give you a list. I was brought into a room when I was age 11 and I was given this long list of everything I could not be. You know, I couldn't be a doctor, I couldn't be a, you know, I could fly a plane, I could do this, I couldn't do that. So it, just, it was just abusive all the time, like you can't see things right. You're, you're wrong, you know. Um, and especially with art, I remember getting an E at art when I was at high school basically because I, I, the sky was purple in this painting that I'd done. And as a young as a young guy, you think, oh, God, but that's wrong, and I'm wrong. Whereas as you get older, you realise, actually, that's, that's, that's cooler, the fact that I can, like... But, you know, yeah, I had a teacher who was just basically telling me I was wrong and I couldn't do anything. So I think that made me grow up a bit, you know, separated from that side of the art world, which made me get deeper into the side of the art world that I knew I could could um, excel in, I suppose, you know. I mean, I presume at that early point, I mean, you're talking somewhat a bit later as well, we've, we've moved a little bit, but at that early point, let's say when you uh, were 17, you were still living at home. Uh, yes. And, you know, and um, <laughs> I imagine, and I don't know for, for sure, but, you know, uh, my parents had put no value on a creative life when I was young. It was a thing. It was a thing you shouldn't uh, do, in a sense. Yeah. How were your parents about that? And how did that sort of influence you? It was really funny because at school, I was quite academic until I got to the age of 16. <laughs> And I just kind of threw it all out the window. And they kind of, they started blaming it and people I was hanging about with. 
you know, because basically it was all just about music for me. And, and there was a period where my dad was uh, like a football manager for a team. And I was always surrounded by football players watching football in their house. And I really don't like football and I have no interest in football whatsoever. So I used to kind of go up to my bedroom and play, you know, I, I had, I went, there was a period where I was obsessed with mute records. So I was like blasting fad gadget records at full blast from my bedroom and things just as a, as a kind of thing. And I think my mum and my, my, my parents, um, they kind of never took it serious until we released a flexi disc on our fanzine, which cost like it cost us twenty pounds to record the track. We put it on this fanzine, and it got a uh, single of the week in the NME, which they've never had a clue what the NME was, so that didn't impress them. But what impressed them was one day I'm sitting in my bedroom, and the BBC phoned, and it was John Peel's office, um, and my mum's like. Um, John Peel's on the phone for you, and I'm like, what? And I ran down, and it was it was his producer asking if he would do a John Peel session. So as soon as the words BBC were involved, you know, that's when they were like, oh, you know, that's when they started telling my aunts and uncles, yeah, Sean's going to be on the BBC, you know. So it's like, yeah, that that changed things quite dramatically, and um, and it was kind of nice though because I think in a way the Soup Dragons, and then they started seeing me being connected with BMX Bandits and. You know, and, and, and it was that kind of intertwining thing from our little town. People, you know, people, producers in the BBC are really good. You know, they want to investigate and all this. And um, all of a sudden, Glasgow had this kind of up-and-coming new scene going where there was, you know, the Jesus and Mary chain and the early primal scream, the shop assistants. Uh, before then, there was the pastels, you know. So it was um, suddenly Glasgow was this hodgepodge of um, Indium and... Um, my mum and dad were kind, that's kind of when they let the strings go. You know, I was no longer meant to be an accountant or a, or something serious. It was just like, well, there's obviously something happened here. So, um, and then, um, yeah, I kind of, uh, you know, we started releasing actual records. And I think that kind of really impressed them. Even though I was still staying at, staying at home and she was moaning about the fact that I was, you know, I wasn't paying any kind of like upkeep or anything. They, uh, I think back to it, they were really good in that respect. They, uh, but I left home quite early. I mean, I think I left home when I was 19, 18, 19. Just staying in Glasgow a second, because I always found Glasgow a sort of city of contradictions. And I remember going there and um, people were incredibly friendly um, and there seemed to be an incredible amount going on. And it was very rough. And I remember yeah. going to a gay club and there was a fight. And a gay, I was completely impressed because I'd never seen a fight <laughs> in a gay club. I actually bet I know what gay club it was. It was oh, Bennett's. I, I can't remember. I really can't remember. But I think yeah. there was only one gay club. So it must have been that. Yeah, yeah there, will be, there will be that. Yes, I don't think it's there anymore. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah. No, it's very impressive. Glas Glas Glasgow's um, very. She's thinking about Glasgow. I mean, I get this a lot living in London, where people think you're being um, confrontational about the way you speak. But what the way I say it, I mean, obviously the accent doesn't help because people try. People associate that kind of Glaswegian, you know, slightly in your face kind of person. But the confrontation comes from passion. You know, a lot of a lot of. And Glasgow there's a hell of a lot of passion to do with music and obviously football and all that kind of stuff. Um, the only problem with 
when I was growing up, there was two football teams and you'd be asked straight away, do you support Rangers or Celtic? And the only reason somebody would ask you that was to work out what religion you were. You know, because I went to Catholic school, you know, and why I went to Catholic school, I don't know, because I've never ever followed anything to do with Catholic religion. But, you know, there was a Catholic, there was basically Catholic schools and Protestant schools. And, um, you know, there was two teams, Glasgow Celtic, Glasgow Rangers. It's still, it's still the same. I get asked, even to this age, I still get asked when I when you hear a Glasgow accent, who do you support, Glasgow, Glasgow uh, sorry, Celtic or Rangers? And you're like, it's, it just fascinates me that that still goes on, you know, that kind of segregation to do with religion, to do with sport. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I'm... Catholic, as in exactly the same as you, brought up a Roman Catholic, and uh, and yeah. I think the Catholic guilt played a role in my life. I may come yeah, to yeah. that a bit later. Um, talk, talk, in, in, yeah. in terms of um, John Waters, I mean, I'm a huge fan of John Waters. Got you know all all those movies, but and I think basically, and this may be something which connects us as well. I was obsessed with Divine. Um, okay, was that was was she an obsession for you? Well, I wrote a song called Divine Thing. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and, to, and, to be, and to be honest, the video, uh, which was was which was made in ninety uh, one in New York, downtown New York, uh, by a guy called Nick Egan, who I loved the video for Buffalo Girls by Malcolm McLaren because it was very New York and it was very, you know, what you what you call guerrilla shooting where you just go out and film stuff. So um, Nick had that idea because I said to Nick, I want to make a video that looks. You know, I just I just love that taxi driver feel of New York. Can we make a video that looks like that? And um, and he just he, he done an amazing job. But um, John Waters loved it. And um, when we played in Baltimore, he gave me a can of hairspray signed, <laughs> which I still have. Pride of place, my can of hairspray from John Waters. And then then there was talk of him making the next video, which was a song called Pleasure. In America, because Divine Thing was very successful and like on MTV and all that in America, and um, he was really up for doing pleasure, and we were like blown away. I mean, I spoke to his, I spoke to his people and all this about ideas we had. We wanted to do it, and um, there was a place in in California that Chad knew he would love, which is a place called the Madonna Inn, which is basically a hotel made up of people's pleasures. And it's from the 50s, 40s, 50s. So it's it's got that kind of like retro kind of um, weird romanticism, but it's also pretty messed up. And um, he loved the idea and we're talking and all this. And then um, I think it was must have been around the time of, I think it was Serial Mum. It was roughly about the same time. And as you know, that became really successful. So um, sadly, it never happened. But um, we did keep in contact because... Moving forward, when I'd done the video for Testify with Crystal Waters, Crystal Waters lives in Baltimore, just outside Baltimore, and she did her bit in Baltimore. I did my bit in Glasgow. Uh, sorry, Glasgow, London. Um, and um, I wanted to get John Waters to be a, a preacher in the video. <laughs> so I still had the contact details and the message. I'm thinking they would come back and they came back. And... Um, they were just like, sorry, we're really busy at the moment, all this, but we love the track, and you know, they were like super nice. Um, I've had lots of weird contacts regarding that. Um, I done um, 
soft sell, like soft sell about five, four, five years ago, um, asked me to remix two of their tracks. One of them, they asked me, they actually, Dave Ball said to me, um, choose what two tracks you want to remix. And one of them was a track called Soul. I don't know if you know that, Soft Sell Soul. It's the B-side of what. And Dave goes, I don't know where the tapes are, but we're going to try and find them. So he went on to this kind of like three-month thing of trying to work out, because the tapes in London, the studio closed down, but then he worked out that the person who owned that studio moved to Baltimore. And they actually found the tapes of Soul in the basement of a house in Baltimore that was on the same street that Divine lived on. Oh, wow. It's a weird connection. I mean, I remember, you know, I'm old enough that I saw Divine Live uh, once in, I think, around 1982, 83, uh, when it was all shoot your shot. Yeah, this is when she'd done the the Hacienda around. Yeah, that must have been the same time. And she did this uh, uh, gay club bolts in, uh, in London. And... Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a performance and a and a half. I mean, it was it was so in your face. It was. I think the classic the classic one was a tube. I mean, that was the one that turned everybody onto divine. I mean, when she walked down those stairs singing "Shake It Up," it was just like everybody I knew was just like that. That, that, that the next day it was because that was a Friday, wasn't it? So it was the next day on a Saturday. You were at, you were out with your friends at gigs or clubs. It was just. Everybody was divine. And once again, you know, those records weren't meant to be for punks. They weren't meant to be for, like, indie kids. But it's just, like, everybody loved them. And that was just a great, like I was saying earlier, it was just that that kind of scene that we revolved in had nothing to do with, like, you had to like this kind of music. It was just, like, you liked any kind of music. And, um, and that was the weird thing about young indie guitar bands back there. I think the music papers thought we were all very insular and that's all we listened to. We didn't. You know, we had... Record collections that were all over the place. Yeah, it was also Bobby O produced, wasn't it? Bobby Orlando, yeah. which was, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a phenomenal person in terms of the development of of music of uh, in the eighties. Um, yes. How important was, you know, obviously Divine as an an image and a and a and a character and a human being and that power, but also the music had an an incredible driving power how important mm. was it for you to sort of be able to listen to that type of music and appreciate that type of music in your career i just i mean that that you shake it up and it kind of came out around the same time as uh you were doing blue monday and all this so it was you all kind of felt like you know it's obviously you know blue monday had a definite association with that kind of high energy gay club scene Obviously, when you're like 17 years old, that doesn't connect to you. You just suddenly hear all these records that sound like they come from this futuristic kind of world. And the weird thing was, I mean, um, I was into synthesizers before I was in a guitar band. So just just around the, like the age of like 14, 15, I actually made an album. This is a true story. <laughs> you, you laugh at this. I made an album in my bedroom with a Roland SH-101 that my mum and dad got me for my Christmas. Uh, my friend's drum machine, uh, you know those double double cassette decks, and I worked out how I could double track. You know, I would record the drums and a bass line, and then record it while I was playing some keyboards. So I would like bounce backwards and forwards to the cassettes, layering different tracks. So I made a I made a twelve track album, and I even named the band. I called myself Silent Industry. I made this cassette, 
And um, I found, and, and there's a cover version of Corona Baby by the Human League on it, which is from Travelogue. And um, I found the cassette a few years ago and I told somebody about this and the word got about, and there's actually a record label um, that are going to release it next year on vinyl. This, this imaginary band that I made up before I like, you know, was playing loud feedback guitars in a band, you know, and it's, and it's kind of funny because I was really good at programming drum machines when I was 14, 15. I really got into programming drum machines. So when all that divine and, you know, high energy stuff was happening, I just associated it straight with that, you know, like, you know, uh, Daniel Miller and his Silicon Teens and all the kind of early mute stuff. I just, I could hear the connection because a lot of that stuff was four on the floor and quite dancey and... um yeah, I mean, I mean, as a DJ now, I mean, I, I play a lot of Bobby Orlando. I mean, I was actually played on Saturday. It was a club playing, and I played the original. I'm uh, so Bobby hot for you, not that one. No, 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 no. Oh, I, I, played, I played. <laughs> I played the uh, version of West End Girls, the yeah. original Pet Shop Boys one that Bobby Orlando did, which actually has different verses. You know, it's got extra words in it and things. I really like that version. Yeah, I was completely mad about his own I'm So Hot For You, which sort of just fascinated me at that time. Want your voice to be heard across Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and hundreds of other podcast apps? Then you should start a podcast with Acast. Whatever you love to talk about, there's an audience out there who wants to hear it. Acast amplifies your voice to millions of listeners around the world with all the tools you need to create, grow, and make money from your podcast. You can get started completely free at acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You mentioned uh, Dave Ball and, of course, Mark Almond. Uh, and you've just mentioned the Human League. And, of course, then, you know, the the the, the second can- incarnation of the Human League was Martin Rushant in terms yeah. of production. How uh, important was Martin Rushant to, to you? Huge. Huge. I mean, that, that, I wouldn't have made that cassette in my bedroom if it wasn't with Martin Rushant. I didn't know what a dub was. Yeah, I was like 14, 15. I just saw these, when that Human League uh, Love and Dancing album come out, or, you know, League Unlimited Orchestra, um, that completely blew my mind. It was my brother who had it. And I stole it from my brother's bedroom, basically, and it stayed in my bedroom until he took it back and then I'd take it back. But I was just, I was completely obsessed with the idea because I loved Dare. You know, Dare was just this genius pop album. And um, I even met the Human League in an airport once when, when I was going on holiday with my family. And my mum's like, this is the Human League, you love them? And she dragged me over and got me got my photograph taken with them and they signed things. I wish I still had that photograph, you know, age 12, of the Human League. But the, uh, I was I was kind of obsessed with that album, dear. And then obviously went backwards and bought Travelogue and started getting into the BEF and Heaven 17 stuff. But then, um, yeah, Love and dancing just blew my mind. It was just kind of like I'd never heard. And then, and then, it, like people had never, people never bring this up. Martin Russian's altered images, twelve inches, were just insane. I mean, literally, John Peel used to play them all the time. Like you'd hear, see those eyes, and I think the other one was Pinky Blue. Oh, I think it's called. And then, 
And it was just like taking somebody's song and putting it through a, a food processor where it contains no, you know, it just doesn't sound anything like the Sovereignage. And that, that would that would just, wow. And he was my god for a while, his drum machine. Pro, I used to be able to program the whole of Dare on a drum machine. I know every drum fill, da, 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 bum, 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 bum. And I know what side the, the toms go and everything. I'm completely obsessed with that, love and dancing. Oh, wow. Um, you mentioned again John <laughs> yeah, Peel. Wow. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I think that's amazing at that age. You know, it's <laughs> incredible. Um, you mentioned John Peel again, and John Peel uh, became a friend of yours over the years, I understand. Or you, yeah, you yeah. had contact with him over the years. What do you feel that, um, I don't mean in a in a professional or, you know, in a, in a sense from him actually playing your music, but in terms of a human being, what do you feel that you learned from John Peel in your life? Passion. Um, his, his passion for music was just... And his passion for introducing people to music was the thing that blew me away. It wasn't really about him finding the music. It was about kind of like him finding music to give to you. And that just really, I just thought that was one of the most humble, beautiful things ever. And... Um, and I always loved, I always loved how excited he got about things. Um, you know, the, the I mean, I've told this story before, but it was the the band after the Soup Dragons, the High Fidelity. Now he he had no reason to like, you know, obviously he was a huge reason the Soup Dragons done so well in the early years. He was a huge fan and all this, but then he stopped playing our records. Kind of what he said to me was, it's the same as like when T-Rex, you know, when your records start going in the charts, I'm like, I'm not playing them because I don't like them. It's just that every other, every other show's playing them. I've only given two hours a night to introduce to people music that they don't hear in all these other shows. So why should I be playing all these stuff that's already getting played all over daytime radio? And I totally understood that. I think I was, it was a lovely thing to say. But he said, I never stopped not liking you. I just didn't, you know, I just didn't play records. But he said, with the high fidelity, he became a he became really invested in the band after the Soup Dragons. He really liked us. And um he asked us to do uh he used to do those you know we used to do those Christmas shows like from Peel Acres, which was made of ale. And um <laughs> he used to like uh, get bands to do a Christmas song. So the high fidelity we done Silent Night, which was kind of the most obvious thing, because he laughed about that. He was, I oh, we have the high fidelity doing the most obvious Christmas song that they could do. But we did it on Omnicords. And he just came up after and like he came up live on air. You can actually hear it. He comes up and he's like, What is this? And I'm like, it's an omnicord. It's this this instrument that I'm slightly obsessed by. And he got me to play some bits and all this. And then when we went off air, he came up to me and he went, You should do a whole album of just on the chord songs. And I was like, really? And he went, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you should do it. And I said, it's your birthday in a few months time. And he went, yeah. And I went, I'll buy you an Omnicord, but you've got to write a song with me on the Omnicord album. If I do a whole Omnicord album. And he went, okay, deal. And he, um, he wrote a song about his wife, Pig, Pig Might Fly, which is on that album, which is called the Omnicord album, which is actually, a, there's a poster for it there. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> <The> Omnicord album. <laughs> um, and he, uh, yeah, he did that. And um, and then the next thing he did was he got us round to his uh, cottage, which was outside, uh, out in the country, outside London. Um, and uh, we did a few sessions, on the court sessions from his house, which was wonderful. And the famous story is, and I'm not making this up, next morning around his breakfast 
table in his in his country kitchen. Um, the postman came with this huge sack of post and just turned like, hey, John, and just pumped it next to his, his table. So I'm sitting having a coffee and breakfast and he starts making, because it was the days of CDs and cassettes, so he's making piles of CDs and cassettes. And I'm like, so it's a pile. So he's like, definitely listen to, eh, nah. And I'm like, I just looked at him and I, and I honestly, I remember this day, I always get chills when I talk about this. So I, I looked him in the eyes and I said, what is it that keeps you doing this? It keeps you going. And he just looked, he, he kind of stopped and looked up to him and the next record I hear might be the best record I've ever heard. And then, then it was just like, that blew my mind. It was just like, that's, what do you say to that? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, you've, we've jumped around a bit here, and I want to go to something that's, <laughs> that, you know, we've jumped over eras, we've jumped over the, you know, the Sorry, that's period. me. Um, but no, no, that's fine. But I, I, I don't, you know, need to tell this in, in that uh, sort of linear way. But one thing okay. that really fascinates me about your life not necessarily your career, about your life. And it's possibly because I'm a gay man. And so for me, this is, uh, you know, something that, that that's really amazing. There was a period of your life where you were lost in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, in a kind of nice way, I came out um 2001. Just kind of funny when I always think back now that it was 2001, because all my life I was obsessed with that year. I think maybe it was because of the Stanley Kubrick movie or something, but I was always like, wonder what I'll be doing in 2001, you know, when you're a kid. Oh, I wonder if 2001, if I'll have a spaceship. I wonder if 2000, and no, 2001, I had a complete and utter breakdown, came out as gay and um, hated myself, hated what I did to everybody around me. Um, that was because and, you were married and you, you have a child. Yeah. And that yeah, that yeah. was then, was. do you look back and say that was my Catholic guilt? That's why I sort of mentioned it earlier, because I've always wondered, reading your story, um, whether whether there was some that feeling of guilt I mean, if you know, there is a word in German. I can't remember what it is, and it's about when you're older and you come out as gay. They've even got a word for it. So it's not that unusual. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was um, the guilt of knowing there was two ways to go. Either I was going to hurt people or I was going to end up hurting myself. And if I didn't stop, it was going to go either way. So it was like, you know... It was a bit of a self-preservation, and that was kind of selfish. But then that's where all the the guilt comes from as well. Um, yeah, I had to basically kind of start my life in two thousand one again, a life that I never knew anything about. Um, got myself into some horrible situations regarding it. You know, trying to learn my way through obstacles. I lost basically all my friends. Um, not through any fault of theirs. It was more through the fault of mine of not, you know, I, I suppose it's that kind of thing when somebody dies, it's an embarrassing thing to reach out to people. So I think it was, a, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty catastrophic kind of to suddenly like one day everything in your life changes, like everything, you know, um, <laughs> I always remember the members of the, I always laugh at those the high fidelity the other guys were like when I told them I was getting oh, thank god we thought you were a heroin addict for the last year <laughs> I was just like 
because <laughs> uh, yeah, I became so self, I became so withdrawn in myself, um, locked myself away for a long time, and um, basically, kind of, if it wasn't, you know, to fast forward many years later, a phone call where I accidentally met the man who's now my husband. I don't know where my life would have went because I hadn't made, I never made a record again for about. You know, like, I mean, like, I'd made things, but I'd never made a proper album. This is my music again for 15 years. You know, it took me that long to, um, and the DJing thing was just a way of me being involved in music without actually having to make music or be a singer. I mean, I've never, I, I don't know if you've noticed, I don't sing anymore, which, you know, I'm working with David McCallum, which he finds interesting that I do not want to sing anymore. I think it's, I just don't have any confidence and my being a front person or being somebody who project, I, I, I like the idea of being this person on the side. But I suppose, I suppose my dream of being Martin Russian has, has happened. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a character that likes making music and doing my thing and kind of controlling that space. Whereas um, when you're the singer of a band, um, it, it can, it, it can be a bit. Um, it can be a full-time job, basically. And, um, and DJing is... <laughs> the great thing about DJing is, is you're not in a band. You're not dealing with people's problems. It's not like a soap opera every day. So I kind of caught on to that quite... When I started DJing, I never thought I would end up being a DJ. Jesus Christ. I just played a bunch of disco records at somebody's party in Glasgow and somebody heard it and asked me to come again. And then I came again to this party and then the next minute I'm DJing at Glasgow Art School and then the next minute myself and my friend are given a party at Glasgow Art School that ran for five years and it was every Thursday I never thought I was going to end up being a full-time DJ and um, and look at me now you know I was in, I was in Australia last month DJing and it just completely blows my mind that I've, I've actually got to that point without having any kind of you know, because the weird thing about people would say, like, what's the difference between being a DJ and being in a band? I think people, DJs are quite careerist. It's a bit like the focus and like, I'm a DJ and I'm going to do this. When you're in a band, you just do it and you just, whatever happens, happens. And I think I'm still like that. So getting to a certain point as a DJ, you just kind of think, when you, when you see your name on a poster, you're about like... God, I can't believe I'm actually... I mean, even, even the name Hi-Fi Sean was wasn't taken that serious. It wasn't like I sat down one day and go, I'm going to be called Hi Fi Sean. I had we were we were starting this club at the art school and my friend said to me, this is would have been ninety eight, ninety-nine maybe. And he said to me, You need a DJ name, because I've got a DJ name. And I well, just put Sean Dixon. And he went, No, no, it'd be cool if you have a DJ name. He said, Guess what? You know, your email, because everybody nobody had emails then, but I because I was in the high fidelity, we were given emails and they were all hi-fi Sean, hi-fi Paul, hi-fi Adrian, hi-fi Ross. So he said to me, use that, that's really cool, that email, because that's really cool, it's really futuristic. So that's how hi-fi Sean came about. I just used my email address. Do you know changing your name changes your personality? That's according to my therapist, because I used to be <laughs> a presenter on MTV yeah, yeah. and my real name is Stephen James. So, yeah. you know, there's this, and, and, and this therapist said to me that the the blame created a different character. And do you think it did? Do you think it did? 
I think it did, and I think now yeah. I'm I I'm both I'm now like a fusion of the two, which I think is the healthier version. But I just want to get back yeah. to that lost period because I I find I had a period of my life where my career completely died, and um, it was a ten year period, and yeah. I went very introspective. I also went very suicidal <laughs> and had an awful yeah. period. But when I look back upon that period. Um, and I wrote a book called Getting Lost is Part of the Journey. And that just to sort of describe the fact that that lost period has become the most important period of my life creatively, where I think I reset my life in a way. Yeah. And and it's been a really it's now a really healthy thing. So do you feel that period has actually made you in retrospect? It's made, it's made me a lot more thankful. And a lot more aware of things I should be thankful for, and the, the, there was a point where I hit rock bottom. Yeah, and you know, um, you know, I was suicidal, and ended up um, in a mental health institute, etc. And that's when you realise it's kind of weird. It's, I, I've never had that feeling again, obviously, but that feeling of this is the lowest that I could possibly get. This is, I can't go any I can't go down any more than this. So the only way is up. And I'm not joking for about a week in this mental health institute, I was singing the only way is up to myself, which is weird because my manager was Jazz Summers and Jazz Summers was married to, you know, Yaz. Yeah. So I, I I was around when that record was getting made. You know, I remember the whole incarnation of that record and the fact it went straight in at number one. So it was it's it was just weird that all these years later, that song just stuck in my head. And, and for a week, I was just lying in, like, you know, in a locked room, basically singing The Only Way Is Up to myself. And I convinced the doctor, there was this doctor, there was one doctor that I kind of realised was slightly younger and a bit cooler. Everybody else was, like, aged old professory types. This guy was like, and I said to him, listen, if I tell you that tonight... I'm actually supposed to be DJing at my club and I haven't told my friend who I run it with where I am. Nobody knows that I've been in here for a week and I really want to go and DJ tonight at eight o'clock. I want to leave this place and go and DJ. Does that not tell you that I'm actually trying to get myself out of all this? And he looked at me and he said, let me get back to you. And he went away for an hour later. He came out and he goes, right, we're going to let you go. And I went straight to the club and DJed. And I remember... <laughs> At the end of the night, we always always drove my friend back to his house because it was on my way home. So I took the car and I drove, and um, I told him afterwards. I went there. Uh, I've been. I, I kind of took my tried to take my life last week, and I've been locked away in a in a, um, a health mental health ward. And um, uh, I because when did you get out? I went five hours ago, <laughs> six hours ago. Do you think you came straight here? I went yeah. Why not? I'm not going to do that again. You know, it's 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 been a complete learning process about how. You know, it it, it was the best night ever. I remember DJing and had tears in my eyes and all this. It was just a, just realised it was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, this is stupid. I, I need to, not go that way. I need to go that way. So every time that record comes on, <laughs> it's just like I get chills down my spine. 
That's amazing. I um I want to come obviously to to things much more present. Um, and you mentioned David McAlmont. When did you become aware of him as an artist, and what attracted <laughs> you? <laughs> I mean, the obvious the obvious answer is when yes came out. But obviously, I I, I, I kind of, when he talks about his his band beforehand, I'm sure I had heard his band beforehand. But um, obviously, yes exploded didn't it it was just like massive records especially here in the UK and um, yeah it was just it was just a beautiful record there was kind of everything I like like I said earlier you know I was I'm, I have that very electronic side to me but also I have that very big thing with a lot big Burt Bacharach string sections in fact me and David went to see Burt Bacharach from my husband um, two years ago it was funny because I was it was Gay Pride in London and I was supposed to be DJing at just in Trafalgar Square. But we went to see Burt Bacharach before at the Royal Festival Hall and we cried all the way through it. She sat there in tears down her face like, oh my God. And then and then I looked at my thing and I was like, oh shit, I'm supposed to DJ in half an hour. And they were all like, well, you're staying. And I'm like, well, I can't leave. And it was like, I, I literally ran across Trafalgar Square at full speed to get to the DJ stage to uh, to play. But, um, yeah, yeah, anyway, but I'm diversing again. But David, yeah, uh, yeah David, I, I kind of feel like, it wasn't just yes. I mean, I bought that album, but then I followed his, his path. And then you would see him appearing on um, Later and things like this, doing the odd... That's the thing I love about David. David doesn't follow the A, B, C, D of being a pop star. He does what he wants to do. And that's but what makes Same as you. <laughs> same as you. Well, yeah, but well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But that's what makes, to me, I discovered, this is the thing, I never knew David as a person until I'd done the FT album, which is obviously a big story as well, because that was just my concept of trying to give myself confidence by having other people involved. So it's about like if I get if I write songs and get other people to write them with me, but they sing them, then that issues <laughs> that issue of singing is not going to happen. And um, and I just wrote this list of people that I kind of thought right, I want to find twelve people on this album that have something completely unique about what they do, not only as a vocalist but as a songwriter as well. And I wrote this list of like 14 people and I asked 14 people and every single one said yes. Apart from one, I won't tell you, but every single one said yes. And uh, which blew my mind, Alan Vega. Jesus Christ, I got an email from Alan Vega saying, I used to be a big fan of the Soot Dragons. I've just been sat, sat up all night listening to your records. It's like, who knew? Until you reach out to these people and they tell you things, you know. Um, Fred Schneider you know, ended up being, became good friends through that. And, um, but David, David was an amazing story because David, we'd never met. And I booked a studio in Brixton where he lives to um, record the vocal. And we decided to meet like half an hour before in a coffee shop. And we just instantly clicked. Uh, we went round, we did the vocal, we finished the track and then we just started hanging out with each other, like, like friends. You like, he was become, he kept coming to it when I DJed at clubs and um I would then he said to me, I do this thing, but I don't really, you know, I do this kind of thing, but I love doing just because I love doing it. But I I I play in a jazz club in South London, but I do like um 
I'll do a whole night of Prince songs with a jazz band or a whole night of, uh, you know, Bowie songs with a jazz band. And that's the point that blew my mind because I started going to all of them. I've seen them do everybody. I went to like, I started going to everyone and it was just like, I just saw this whole world of David McCallum that people didn't know. And, and, and a fun side as well, because I think people think David's like super serious. He's not super serious. He's, he's, he's super fun. And I just saw these crazy things that I just thought, oh my God, I just so want to work with this guy. This is, this is who I want to make music with. And I made, I phoned him up, and I said, uh, "He came round. He came round to my. He came round to my place, and we wrote a song. This is before I said about the album. We wrote this song because of a kind of conversation that when we were we were having a drink, <laughs> we got a bit tipsy, and we had this kind of a uh, heated conversation about Prince, um, about how I said like." To write songs like Prince, you have to be a producer. You have to you have to know the production before you write the song. And I believe a lot of Prince songs, he had the production in his head before he wrote the song. And he's like, he didn't get it. He goes, prove it. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll write a song that sounds like Prince, just based on production. So I wrote this track, like literally in like thirty minutes, and David sang in it, and we ended up having this brilliant track. And then a few days later, it came round and we ended up doing another track just for fun. And then I realised we had two tracks and I phoned him up and said, um, <laughs> David, do you know how we've got two tracks? He's like, yes. I said, well, what do you think about making more tracks if we made an album? And he went, mm, I'll have a think about it. Phone me tomorrow. But he tells me now that he knew straight away he was going to say yes, but he was just playing around. And the next morning I, I phoned him to apologise. I was like, listen, I'm really sorry. I backed you in a corner. I said, he's like, shut the fuck up. Of course I want to make an album. And um, yeah, we've made the first album coming out in February and we're all ready. We're all ready. Like, like last week he was here and we've already nearly finished the second album. And the first one isn't even out yet. You know, that's how much we're enjoying it. It's, we're doing it for ourselves. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's like, of course we want to make records that people like, but I've never felt like I was 18 again, where it's just about, this is for us. Number, you know, purely, this is for us. This is this is for us to get our rocks off on. And if anything happens to it, amazing, you know, but, yeah. I mean, the songs oh, that, that I've heard... Sense. Yeah, no, totally, because the songs that I've heard also, they feel very filmic. I know you've mentioned Bacharach and the Swirling Strings and things like that, which is obviously a, a, a part of the influence that would make that. Um, but they have this sort of um, filmic quality to it. Obviously, you're connected um, through music. What do you think he has contributed to you musically? And what do you feel that you have given him? I wish he was sitting here right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I think he, he has said to me that I've working with me. I I kind of give him an open. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm very like I make something and 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 we just take it whatever way it goes. I'm pretty easy going in that way. It's not about like right, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Never ever ever told David he's got to do something or your or anything. You know, it's it's completely. I trust him a hundred percent implicitly 
to do the best that he wants to do. And I think he trusts me to do the best too. And I think it's the first time I've had somebody that gives me confidence. And I think I give him confidence too, um, which um, which is weird because I've never been in a situation of being in a duel. You know, this is the weird thing as well. Suddenly you wake up and you realise, oh my God, we're a duel. We spoke about that when we were doing photographs. It's like, oh my God, we're a duel. You know, it's like... He's been in. Well, he's. I suppose he has been a duo before with with Bernard, but I've never been in that situation. I've been in bands, or I've been myself. So suddenly I'm in a duo, and it's uh, it's great because it's uh, it's yeah. It, it, I think over the few years we've been working together now, I can kind of he can read me, and I can read him without having to ask. I know straight away if I do something that David's going to like. I just like yeah, he's going to love us. And then there's things that I do where I push the envelope to see if he does. You know, so that's that way of like guiding things to try and work out. But to be honest, we we make more music than we'll ever release. We just constantly make stuff that just falls to the side. I mean, that album that's coming out, Happy Ending, we must have recorded about 23 tracks. And it's got, it's got 12 tracks on it, but we just kept going and going and recording because the concept was we sat and we, we sat around the we sat at my kitchen table one day and said right this is what we do we get to the point where each of us fight for the 12 tracks in the album and when we know there's 12 tracks that we're fighting for that's when we know we've got a good album so we always kind of just kept recording going right no that one's 100% not coming off. Then he'd do that with another track, and I'd be like, no, no, no. So it'd be like, when we both agreed 100% on the track, it got on the album. So that's how we did it. I want to finish with um, a period of yours in in New York, because I, I did an interview not long ago with Man Parish, And okay. Man Parish talked about that, that era uh, in New York and um, Michael Eilig and... Uh, also, what happened um, um, around that time, he actually mentioned that he picked up Michael Ailey when he came out of prison and went on a ah. two-hour uh, car journey Bend around up. New York yeah, just yeah. to hear the story. And the story, you should hear that because it's fucking amazing. Um, yeah. what, what was that period in your life for you and why do you <laughs> think that may have been an, an important period? That New York, when... when it was kind of like we were staying on and off in America, but there was a period where I was just based in New York for a long time, and there was a period where we had our own place. And um, it was it was kind of weird because, you know, the 88 to 90, 88, 89, 90, being in the UK during the whole rave thing, but then going to America and seeing it all starting there as well. So it was kind of like, it was like a year or so behind, but it was a completely different, much more hardcore version in New York. You know, it was like, there was a lot of drugs and there was a lot, I mean, I was, I went to a few of Michael's parties and um, the one I always remember was Club USA. So basically, he did, you know, he did the parties in the limelight, and then um, Club USA, obviously, some huge super club, thought we want this promoter, so they gave him a club. So he built a, a like a fairground slide coming from the top balcony down to the bottom dance floor. And it was just complete people, completely 
because it was just all ketamine. It was, it was that was it was kind of weird because in, in the UK it was all ecstasy fueled, but in New York it was just ketamine. It was just people like it's funny because the, the character in the party monster movie, which is uh, Marlon Manson, you know the big crazy that. Um, I think she was in the elevator taking you up and down the floors of this club because it was the only way to go up to the different dance floors was to go in this elevator or go down the fairground ride. And I decided, like, I ain't going on that. So um, I remember getting in this elevator with this, with this, <laughs> where she was just pressing random buttons because she was so off her face. The doors just kept opening at the same floor and things. And we were all just like, why do you go up to number four? And we were like, open number two, number four. Like trying to press buttons, like, uh, uh, that was kind of, um, yeah. I used to go to, I don't know, there was a club in New York called Save the Robots, which was like an afterwards party, and that was pretty mad. I mean, I think that opened my head up to the whole DJ side of things as well. I think I, I kind of associate those years, I mean, in New York, going to Jackie's 60s in the meatpacking district. I, I mean, to be honest, Divine Thing video is a complete and utter picture of that whole period. I mean, and I'm I'm really proud of that video because we got nominated. We got nominated for an MTV award for a video that was actually had trans characters on it well before. I mean, it was getting played on daytime TV right across America, Bible Belt, you name it. And it was, there was a lot of kind of, trans superstars from that New York scene in the, the video and it was very kind of uh, the best thing was Iggy Pop says it was his favourite video of that year on MTV and that was just that was just like well <laughs> that, that was the best thing that ever happened to me around that time and then and then getting getting nominated for an MTV award was kind of weird because the first thing we asked was do you find out if you win and they're like no I always thought that when people get a, go to award shows, they know beforehand. But guess what? They don't. You don't have a clue. So we had to do the whole thing of going all the way to LA and sitting for like for a four-hour MTV award show because our nomination was right at the end as best alternative video, and um, and and the the you know the nomination had four nominations. It was Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and us. <laughs> just like what, you know, it's just the most insane period. That whole New York years were amazing, amazing, amazing times. Yeah, well, Iggy Pop's always had good taste, so I think that's uh, a, a good place to end. I really think you've had an amazing um, life because it's been so yeah, diverse, and yeah. and and also has a happy ending, you know, which is very important. <laughs> Oh my God! Did people think that <laughs> we called it a we called it a happy ending because um, when you see the artwork and the whole the whole feel of the album is is euphoric and melancholic, and for some reason the term happy ending I think fits that euphoria and sadness, you know. So yeah, well, I think is. you've you've had that in your life as well. So, yes, yeah, and uh, and you so, know, so does everybody. You know, everybody has periods of you know euphoria and sadness. You know, and I think you know when you've reached those, when you get actually, maybe not so many people have had the extremes like you said as well, like yourself. But I think when people have had those extremes of euphoria, you know, being nominated for an MTV award and a gay pop saying you're great, and then sadness, you're stuck in a mental health institute and you can't get out you know it's 
if, if you haven't tasted those both extremes, you're not going to be able to not take for granted the things that you shouldn't take for granted. I never take anything for granted now. Yeah, beautifully said. And thank God for Yaz. So, <laughs> so <laughs> thanks very much, Sean. That was great. Thank and you. I thank loved you. talking to you. It was brilliant. Okay. Keep okay. in touch. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 